Good morning. How are we today? It's great to see you here. Welcome to those of you who are watching online and to any of our snowbirds in particular who might be watching online, listening today from warm, sunny Florida. Um, if you need a pastoral visit, call. I will come. So uh, I'm, I'm here for you. That's what I want you to know. Uh, I want to start this morning by just kind of saying a, a word of thanks to our congregation for your financial generosity um, in the month of December. In, in the last two weeks of December, you'll see, and this is not all the funds that came in, but almost $100,000 came in uh, just in those last two weeks, uh, which allows us as a congregation uh, to care for people, to share the good news for people, um, to offer programming that's relevant to certain ages, uh, to be with people in ways that even uh, most of us wouldn't even know about just because we allowed to quietly kind of help some folks out. So thank you so much uh, for your generosity. It's a tremendous encouragement, and, uh, and we really appreciate it. So thank you very much. Yeah, and I also wanted to say this morning, too, that if you have been kind of been hanging out here and you say, you know, River Cross is kind of my home church now, but I've never really been a part of helping uh, through giving, uh, the, the, the new year provides an opportunity for you to do that. And today, if you'd like, you can pick up some envelopes. We have them at the Welcome Center, or if you'd like to give via debit, there's a debit machine as well. If you'd like to be a part and say, you know what, I'd like to help be a part of the things that we're doing together as a congregation, then we'd love to have a conversation about how we can help you do that. But uh, thank you again so much for, for your generosity. So how's the challenge going of reading the scriptures each day through the month of January? How are you making out? Um, you know, whenever I issue a challenge like this, I get all kinds of interesting feedback from people. Uh, you know, I had a, in, a conversation with someone who said, I had been reading the scriptures, but really not really paying attention to them, just going through the motions. And so I'm going to pay a little bit more attention as we go through, uh, in, through, this, through this month. I had another conversation with someone who said, I will read Monday to Friday, but I'm not reading on weekends. <laughs> That's good. We're getting there. That's okay. We can live with that. But my favorite conversations are with people who said, you know, um, I've never read the Bible before, or it's been years since I've read the scriptures, and I'm going to undertake this, but I'm going to need a little bit of help. Can you get, point me in the right direction or give me some resources? Those are the most encouraging conversations that I get to have with people, and we're so proud of those of you who are taking that step, maybe for the very first time, to practice opening your scriptures and reading every day. But I want to remind you that the goal, the win, isn't just the act of reading. The win is that the Bible opens up a channel for each of us to hear God speak. And that that's what we want for you to experience each and every day. The opportunity for God to have input into your life and shape who it is that you're becoming. That we read with a sense of expectancy. That during this time, God will challenge, he will encourage, and he will begin to shape who it is that we're becoming especially in a season of New Year's resolutions where we're all trying to make our lives better. To believe that reading the scriptures is really about allowing God to direct us, to push us, so that we might become the people who he's calling us to be. And this is about the kind of church that we want to be. We don't want a church that's a mile wide and an inch deep. People who kind of go just between Sundays and Sundays and never really have any opportunity in the midst of the week to have God speak to them and give input into their life. So we thank you for reading, and let me just encourage you to continue to do so and not to give up. 
as we go through this um, in this month, I'm just going to be keep preaching on the same passage of Scripture, just to kind of keep pushing us into a text and to keep showing us all that there is there for us as we continue to this practice of reading. So I want you to turn this morning uh, back to the Good Samaritan story, Luke chapter 10. It's on page 1613 if you're using the Red Bible. I did encourage you also to bring your Bibles to church. And if you brought them today, thank you. Um, some of you brought your phones to church and you read on your phones. That's fantastic. I encouraged you if you bring... if you use a notebook to bring a notebook, if you are a highlighter to bring your whole Crayola kit with you and lay it on out in the seat in front of you and go crazy, uh, whatever you do as you read scripture, I want you to feel comfortable doing it while you're here and as we teach through a passage. Luke chapter 10, I'm just going to read the first, uh, starting at verse 25, I'll just read to verse 28 first. This is what we talked about last week. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher or rabbi, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this, do this, and you will live so this passage starts out with an expert of the law, someone who is an expert in the first five books of the Old Testament, coming to Jesus with an important question about what he must do to earn eternal life. He's waiting for Jesus' response because he's going to judge Jesus by his response. And Jesus, using a series of Jedi mind tricks, gets him to summarize the law by saying, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. To which Jesus affirms to him and says, yes, that is the right answer. But then he says to him, you need to go and do it. That knowing the right answer in and of itself is not enough. And that if you do this, you will live. Which is not to mean just someday when you die, you'll go to heaven. It means you can start to experience today the eternal life of God. So he hears Jesus' answer but he's not content. Let's look at verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, and we'll talk more about that next Sunday. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man, and he passed on to the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on to the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity or had compassion on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him now for the second time, go and do likewise. So this lawyer, 
this expert of the scriptures, is still looking to justify himself, to do all of the right things to gain eternal life. He's seeking clarification, and so he asks a really important question. Who is my neighbor? Is it everyone within 500 meters of me? Is it everybody that goes to my synagogue? Is it all other Jewish people? Again, he wants to know so that he can be justified, so that he knows that he's good, that he's done what's needed, and he's earned his right to have eternal life. And so in classic Jesus style, he does not give him a straight answer. He tells a story or a parable. Now, a parable is an earthy story with a heavenly meaning. And in Jesus' day, they contained everyday things from their life, things they were about crops, business deals, seeds and harvest, things that would teach about the kingdom of God. In most of the parables, there's this moment when you're reading through them and a door opens. A door opens. And you realize that if you walk through that door, you will start to see the world differently and you will start to experience eternal life or or understand the kingdom of God in a way that you've never understood it before. I think about the parable that Jesus tells about the businessman who comes and hires people throughout the day. He hires people at 6 a.m., at 9 a.m. He hires them at lunchtime. He hires them at 3. And then he hires a batch an hour before quitting And he brings them all in at the end of the day, and then he pays them. And do you remember what he paid them? All the same thing. How many of you hate that parable? (laughs) That parable opens a door. And if you walk through it, you will start to see the kingdom of God differently. If as you read that parable, you see yourself as the person that's hired last, but gets the same pay as everybody else... You, re- you discover an incredible truth about God's mercy. If you read that parable and see yourself as the person who was hired first, you come face to face with the generosity of God that is so much bigger than anything that you have encountered before. These parables open up a door, and if you will be willing to walk into them and wrestle with the issues that these parables speak to, then you are now on the path to experiencing the life that God wants for you. Because as we read these scriptures, it's not enough to just read. It's to walk into them and say, God, what is it that you are showing me as I encounter this scripture? The parable of the Good Samaritan is no different. It's our PG-13 parable. There's lots of blood and guts in it, so hopefully you enjoyed it this morning. In this parable, there's four main characters. Let's take a quick look at them. The first parable is what I call the mystery man who's been beaten and been robbed. Priests, or sorry, the parable is set in, in, on a road going from Jerusalem south to Jericho. It's a 17-mile stretch about the distance between this building and the St. John Airport. Now, I know most of you who have walked that route many, many times, so you get a feel for kind of how long of a trip that would be. This route has a reputation as a dangerous route, a perfect setting for a traveler to be attacked, beaten badly, robbed of all of his possessions, and then humiliated by being stripped naked. The story goes on to say then Jesus says a priest came by. Priests were the religious and social elite. They worked at the temple in Jerusalem. The priest was probably leaving his post at the temple in Jerusalem and was going home. Priests did two-week shifts, so he worked night and day for two weeks, and now he was going home to enjoy some days off. Priests in those days were wealthy, so he probably was going on a donkey. 
And Jesus says that when he came across the beaten man, he saw him and he turned away. Next comes the Levite, very similar to the priest, likely coming home from being at the temple. And it says that he sees the man. It says it almost gives the impression that he went a little bit closer to him. But then he too walked away. And we need to stop for a second. Because I think Jesus is trying to teach us something. And if you're the kind of person that underlines in your Bible, you, I would underline walked away in both of those accounts. Jesus is trying to teach us who our neighbor is. And he's calling us to notice this physical act of turning away from people in need. This act of crossing over, of seeing someone and then deciding to go in a different direction to move away from them. And before we get smug and roll our eyes at how awful the priest and the Levite are, we must stop and pay attention to this detail and ask ourselves this question. What makes me turn away from people? Who are people that I knowingly or unknowingly turn away from? I see them and I, or I read something about them or I hear a story about that kind of a person and then in my heart I justify I allow myself to walk away from them. Now, as I was going through this passage, the Holy Spirit was on the ball and really reminded me of a story that happened just a short time ago. I, as your pastor, um, and a religious and social elite, um, was traveling from the temple, this church, to my home, not on a donkey, but in a Prius, which goes slightly faster than a donkey. And as I was going home, I saw someone walking on the street. And my immediate response was to not make eye contact with them because I was worried that they would want to drive for me. You see, as we read these scriptures, they open a door for us. And if we would walk through them and allow the Holy Spirit to show us things, then we can see the things that the Lord wants to do in our hearts. So why do we turn away? And more importantly, why do we turn, who do we turn away from, but why do we turn away from them? What is it about people that bothers us? What's the story that we're telling ourselves that justifies the act of turning away from someone? I suggest the answer to this question has to do with our own junk and how that junk impacts the way that we see people. Let's think for a second about why the priest would have turned away from this man. The priest is likely a victim of his own religious beliefs. He's a priest, so he's hyper-aware of being ceremonially un ceremonially clean all the time so that he can fulfill his duties as a priest. There's many ways that you could defile yourself as a priest, but a couple of the biggies were touching a dead person, touching blood, or touching a Gentile. So because this man has no markings, he could have just been one of them, or he could have been all three. Not only that, if a priest became unclean on his journey home, he would have arrived home and he would have had to stand outside the gates of town and wait for someone to come and offer um, a cleansing for him so that he could enter the town as a clean person. It would have been a nuisance. To make matters worse, it would have been embarrassing for a priest. You mean you, a priest, touched a bloody person, maybe a bleeding dead guy, or even worse, a bleeding dead Gentile guy? Total rookie mistake. So the priest does the religious math, and he decides he's not going to delay his trip home. He's not going to embarrass himself, and he crosses over to the other side of the road. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but I noticed it for the very first time as I was reading and preparing for these messages. But Jesus does not give us any identifying markers about who this beaten man was. There's nothing to tell us what kind of a person he was. He was stripped and all of his stuff was taken. Now, in the ancient world, not much different from our day, you could tell people by their clothing, whether what kind of tribe or culture they were from, whether they were rich or whether they were poor, whether they were shepherds or whether they were landowners. If he was rich, maybe the priest changes his decision and helps him out because then maybe the guy owes him. Clothing would have also been able to tell these guys whether this person was Jewish or not. If he was Jewish, there would have been an obligation that he helped out his brother. But because he had no clothing, there was no way to figure out who he really was. Not only that, if we assume that he's half dead, we assume that he's unconscious or is unable to speak. In Jesus' day, there was 12 different language groups in Palestine. And this man was not able to kind of speak a language which would have told both the priest and the Levite who this guy was and where he was from and given them some measure by which to decide whether or not they were going to turn towards him or turn away. Jesus doesn't want this man to have any markings because he wants us to see this guy as a human, as someone the Lord created in his image, a sister and a brother. Too often we do not see people as simply a human in need, but rather what they represent to us, a liability, a drain on our time or a drain on our money. We do not see them as a human, but as a lifestyle that we do not agree with. We do not see them as a human, but as a culture that we don't quite understand. And we've heard some stories about it, and so now everybody is like that. And interesting, as we think about the kind of people that we turn away from, how is it that we can have compassion for someone who has need overseas, but not compassion for someone who has need in our own backyard? How can we have mercy for people who struggle with specific issues, but when it comes to someone in our own family struggling with those issues, we get upset with them? Or vice versa. And what does all of this tell us about us and what's going on in our own hearts? The call of this parable for me is that we need to identify people first and foremost as humans in need of God's mercy. And that when we start seeing people this way, we will start to understand what it means to truly be a neighbor. You see how these parables work? They open a door. And if you've got courage to step in and let God show you some things both in your heart and in our world that we need to wrestle with, then we can start to experience the life that he has for us. There's another story in Luke's gospel that shows us how our own junk gets in the way of seeing people as God does. It's found in Luke chapter 7. Jesus has been invited to the home of a Pharisee, a religious leader, and it goes horribly. So Jesus tells a parable and he makes it even worse. Um, Simon is the religious leader who's hosting the party. He's got Jesus there for a banquet, and while he's there, a woman with a questionable reputation comes in and sits at Jesus' feet and starts making a scene. She's hard to miss. Uh, she's crying, so you can hear her. She's taking her hair and cleaning Jesus' feet with them, so it's not hard to see her. And she's pouring out perfume all over Jesus, so you can change the smell of the whole room. She's impossible to miss. And it's interesting in that passage because it says that when Simon sees her, he says this, if only Jesus knew. 
If only Jesus knew. If only he could see what I know, seen about this woman. Or if he could know what I know about this woman. If he had been on her Facebook page and seen the pictures, then he would not treat her this way. And in the midst of this, Jesus asks Simon a punchy question. He says, do you see this woman? You mean this woman who's crying and wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and pouring perfume all over the place? I mean, she's not hard to miss. Of course he sees her. But he does not see her as Jesus sees her. This is what Jesus is pointing out. For Simon cannot see her act of faithfulness, her act of worship, and her act of gratitude for the grace of God in her life. All Simon can see is her mistakes and her past. Why is it that we turn away from certain people? Why is it that we see certain folks or we know certain folks and there's something within us that wants to turn away from them? I suggest it's because of how we see them and that too often we feel justified in turning away from them. This is the question that comes up from this reading and the question that we have to wrestle with. If we want to be the kind of people who read the scripture and truly find life, then this is where we find it in wrestling with the issues that scripture brings to us. Now, let's uh, get to the end of the story here. If Jesus has not tortured us enough with this story, he deals the final blow when he reveals who the final character is. Now, if you're there sitting listening to Jesus tell this story, you can probably start to see what's going on. Jesus has already picked on the, the, the Levite and, and the priest. And so you're starting to anticipate who's going to be the good guy. We've got two clear bad guys here. Who's going to be the good guy? And they're probably sitting there in the audience, and maybe they're wondering, well, maybe it's going to be a poor Jewish peasant that comes along and takes pity on this person that's been beaten. Or maybe it's going to be an elderly person who heroically comes to the rescue and helps out. Maybe they'll be the good guy when Jesus finishes the story. Or maybe Jesus will be really crazy and the good guy will be a woman. Either way, Jesus' words in verse 33 are the straw that breaks the camel's back for anyone wrestling with how we see people. When Jesus says, but a Samaritan, no one in Jesus' audience in their wildest dreams would expect the good guy to be a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans had centuries of animosity and violence between them. Samaritans worshipped wrong. They had bad theology. They had bad views about scripture and wrong views about the resurrection. In every story Jews told, Samaritans were always the bad guy. But notice the direction that the Samaritan takes when he sees the person in need. What does it say? He goes towards him. He moves towards him. And in Jesus' story, it says that he had pity or compassion on him. <clears throat> and this word compassion is talking about uh, something deep down in your guts that's pulling you towards the person in need. As if everything within the Samaritan was moved by a desire to help this human being in need. And this compassion gets expressed in a seven-step action plan that, took, took, that he expressed on this half-dead man that takes two days to fulfill and requires him paying money out of his own pocket. 
And this image stands in sharp contrast to the religious calculations of the priest and even to the expert of the law who's trying to figure out what are the boxes I have to check in order to earn eternal life. Now, Jesus has opened a door for us with this passage. And he wants the expert of the law to walk through it and wrestle and see the kingdom of God as Jesus knows it's to be true. It's interesting as he does, he asks the simplest of questions at the very end of the passage. And the poor expert of law, you can almost imagine him just kind of dying and squirming in his seat. He asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Such an easy question, but it's such a hard one to say. The expert of the law can't even say the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy on him. And for the second time in this passage, Jesus says to him, go and do this. And if you go and do this, if you go and live this way, you will start to discover life, both now and into eternity. If you do this, you will discover what it means to love the Lord your God with the whole of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus wants us to walk through the door too. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of homework for this week because I don't think it's for now. I think it's for later as you're driving around, as you're going to meetings, as you're, as you're out and about, which is to ask yourself this question, who is it that we turn away from? Who is it that bothers us? that we ignore or that we keep at a distance? Who is it that we have anger towards? Maybe it's a person or maybe it's a group of people. And what does that reveal about what's going on inside of me? What does that reveal about what I believe? And what would it look for us to see someone as human first, someone whom God created as a brother and a sister And then how do I get to the place, and we'll talk about this a lot next Sunday, where I am moved in my guts with compassion for people who are in need? This is your challenge. Let the scriptures open the door, walk through them, and see what life the Lord has for you. Let me pray. Lord, today we thank you for these scriptures. We thank you for this story. Uh, It's difficult in points for us to wrestle with these things, but Lord, you know that as we do, as you will speak to us, as you show us things that are going on in our hearts, as we allow your Holy Spirit to do the work that only your Holy Spirit can do, we'll start to discover life. And that's what we want, and we pray in your name.